Bible Church of Beaufort on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible line. Maybe you are a first time listener. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions from God's word as it relates to their personal life or understanding a particular text of scripture. And if we can be of help to you, we will do our best by the grace of God. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call us again locally, 843-525-1859. The 843 exchange is 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. We get questions like that every week. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Or if you're more comfortable uh, when you call, you don't even have to go on the air live. You can just dictate your question. A lot of people like to do that. They don't want to go on the air. And I understand that. So whatever you're comfortable doing, we will do our best to be of help today. We've had a, just a ton of questions that have come in here, Rick, um, that have been emailed to us, and maybe we can start with those unless you have a live caller right now. Uh, we do not have any live caller right, that well. I can see, so let's go to them. Uh, we have uh, Gary in Yemisee writes, where was Lazarus the days he was dead? He writes, absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? Well, no, not exactly. Um, that's what a lot of people assume. But remember, uh, just because Lazarus is written of in the New Testament doesn't mean that at this point in his death, he's a new covenant saint. Uh, remember, the new covenant starts with the death of Jesus on the cross. And so everything on the right side of the death and resurrection of Christ began to unfold differently. So in the truest sense, kind of like John the Baptist, when he died this time, the first time, and sometimes the question comes up, well, if it's appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment, you know, there are some all kinds of fanciful stories that, well, Lazarus did die on this occasion and then he was resurrected or brought up into heaven like Elijah. And those are all fanciful stories. God often gives the general principle, especially in the epistles, and then we can make, uh, uh, we can look at the different exceptions that he gives. So yes, the general principle is it's appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. But of course, the Bible also teaches that we shall not all die. So there will be a generation uh, in the course of history. And it's been over 2000 years since, uh, almost 2000 years since Christ ascended into heaven. Uh, that, you know, every believer has ex met the Lord through the death, but that's going to change someday. But again, he is an Old Testament saint. So keep that in mind. So what happened to an Old Testament saint when they died? Did they go home to be with the Lord? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, they went to Sheol. And if you've been with us in our study of Revelation, 
uh, we were looking at a phrase about death in Hades. And Hades is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol uh, refers to the place where a person went when they died prior to the ascension of Christ. And so if you're an Old Testament saint and you died, you went to Sheol. And there are two compartments to Sheol. There was righteous Sheol and unrighteous Sheol. So Jesus uh, tells a parable in Luke chapter 16. Some don't think it's a parable because if it is a parable, uh, then it's a certainly a unique parable and that it's the only parable where someone is named and he refers to Lazarus, the poor man who dies, who by the way is not necessarily the same Lazarus. There's no indication that it is. It's possible, I suppose, um, that he is uh, telling it from that perspective, but we don't know that. And then he speaks of the rich man who dies, who's unnamed, and he goes to hell, not because he's rich, but he goes to uh, unrighteous Sheol or Hades because of the fact that he's an unbeliever. Um, when they go there, they're conscious, they're awake, uh, they're aware of all that is happening. After the ascension of Christ, uh, righteous Sheol was emptied out. And so from that point on, uh, it is true to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Lazarus, of course, had been dead for four days. Jesus arrives at the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. And this man who had been literally, physically, actually dead. And some, again, diminish this. And they say, well, he wasn't really dead. He was just asleep in the tomb because Jesus uses the metaphor of sleep. Uh, please, I, I hope you don't think that's what happened. Uh, that's what the liberal commentators often say to try to argue away the miracles of Christ. And some of the explanations that liberal people like William Barclay and others have used to argue uh, away the miracles of the Bible are absolutely astounding and ridiculous and denies basic communication skills. You either the Bible and the miracles they record are either true or they're false, but you can't take some moderate in, be in between decision to, to write them off. But that's what an unbelieving mind often does. Uh, so sooner or later, um, Lazarus is raised, but how was he raised? Well, not like Christ was raised because remember Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. So he receives a resurrection body. Uh, he is brought out of the grave in a body that is uh, suited to walk on streets of gold. And he does that because he wants to show us the kind of body that someday we will get our body, our resurrection body is going to be just like Christ's body. That's what the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter three at the end of the chapter for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So Lazarus was raised to life. He wasn't resurrected to life. Eventually he got old or sick again. The Bible doesn't record it. And he died a second time. Again, that's the exception to the rule. Uh, he did die and he was dead for four days. And of course the Jewish people knew that. That's why when you step into chapter 12, right after the miracles recorded in the 11th chapter, everybody wanted to come see him and who wouldn't this man who had been dead for four days, they wanted to put their eyes on them on him. Remember a lot of these folks had been to his funeral 
and they wanted to see Jesus. And of course, it was so real that we read in John chapter 12 and verse 10 that the chief police priests planned to put Lazarus to death. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. They knew he had been dead. They'd seen his dead body. And uh, they had no way of uh, dealing with this evidence except to, to try to destroy it. So when Lazarus died, uh, where did he go? Well, let me first say where he did not go. He did not go home to be with the Lord because this is still on the left side, so to speak, of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And that's not where uh, believers went home to be with the Lord. But they did go to Abraham's bosom, which is another metaphor for Old Testament uh, Sheol. It's also called paradise. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, did he go there? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, I suppose um, it's possible that he slept in the grave, body, soul, and spirit, which again would be totally unique. And of course, Seventh-day Adventists love to teach what's called soul sleep. And they appeal to John chapter 11, where Jesus said, well, he sleeps. And that is a metaphor that God uses to describe death in the Bible. And of course, context determines everything in terms of the meanings of certain words in the Bible. Some words like in English, like in Hebrew, like in Greek can only mean one thing in every instance. But other words have different connotations depending on the context. And this is true in English as well. You know, we speak of a trunk. Do we mean what's out in front of an elephant? What's at the base of a tree? What's behind a car? What's over a sailor's shoulder? All depends on the context. Well, sleep is often used metaphorically to describe death. So Paul says, we shall not all sleep. Now, the newer translations say we shall not all die. That's an interpretation of the word. And in one sense, in interpreting like it that way, it robs uh, the, the beauty of the metaphor that God gives. He likens death to sleep because just as last night you'd laid down in a grave and uh, excuse me, in your bed and they, uh, you got up this morning. Even so someday someone will lay you down in a grave. If Jesus doesn't come back first and you will get up someday, your body will out of that grave in a resurrected body. That's what we look forward to. So it is, I suppose, in the realm of possibility that he slept in the grave, that the Lord did not want him to go to righteous Sheol. Uh, there are people who went to righteous Sheol who were totally conscious and aware. First uh, Samuel 28, Samuel is awakened out of righteous Sheol, not awakened in the sense that he was asleep, but he was disturbed out of righteous Sheol when the witch of Endor um, is, pl uh, you know, um, plotted by uh, Saul to, to, to bring him up because he needed guidance. And so God brought him up and in essence, he did disturb him and it would be disturbing to be brought out of that place of great comfort and blessing again, known as Abraham's bosom. Uh, but that's where old Testament saints went. Maybe Lazarus went there. Maybe the Lord, um, didn't allow Lazarus to go there uh, for the simple reason when, when Paul at least had a vision at the minimal of heaven, uh, he uh, had to be given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from bragging about it. 
Uh, so we, we, we don't know. So it's sheer speculation. But we do know where he didn't go. He didn't go home to be with the Lord in the Father's house because that was not yet available until Jesus in time and space shed his blood, made a payment not only for the lives of people yet to be born, but for all those who lived prior to the cross. The payment for sin had to be made before people would be allowed into uh, heaven, as we often refer to it today. So it's an interesting question. We can say definitively what didn't happen to him. We cannot say absolutely what did happen to him, whether he just slept body, soul, and spirit, which would be an exception to the rule. And I would not build a doctrine like Seventh-day Adventists do because Again, on this side of the cross, it is so clear to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that to live is Christ, to die is gain, that it's not a loss for the believer. It certainly would be a loss if body, soul, and spirit slept in the grave until the rapture of the church, but that's not what happens. Not to mention the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Christ will bring with him, with him from where? From heaven those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So the body sleeps in the grave. The spirit goes home to be with the Lord. Uh, In the Old Testament, which would have been all the way up until Christ dies in the cross, the body slept in the grave. The spirit or the soul went to righteous Sheol. And again, that's emptied out after the ascension, Ephesians 4. And from this point on, the moment a person dies, the the immaterial portion of man goes home to be with the Lord. The body awaits the resurrection. Good question. Appreciate it. If you want to think through all the different terms on heaven and hell, you might want to uh, go to our series in the Revelation. And when I dealt with um, the fourth seal uh, in Revelation, I dealt with all of the terms in the Bible used for heaven and hell and how they changed on one side of the ascension. So that might be, uh, that might be helpful to you. Uh, actually, it was the uh, fourth seal, the death. Uh, so it's a sermon on Revelation 6, uh, 7, and 8, where I dealt with that particular issue. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Emmanuel has this question about biblical counseling. He says, Biblical counseling seems to be a big debate today between what is biblical counseling or Christian counseling, etc. I am a student at Dallas Theological Seminary where they teach an integration model based on secular psychology principles and theories by godless men that filters the things that are biblical truth. We seem to go over Freud, Adler, Carl Jung, etc., more than the scriptures, in my opinion. As I become more discerning and grow in knowledge of the truth of God's word, I become uncomfortable on some of the things I hear. I'm not clear on everything, but we are taught all truth is God's truth. Why? I agree all truth is from the Lord. I wonder, while I agree that all truth is from the Lord, I wonder why, if we find these theories in scripture, then why won't we just stick with the scripture? I'm not sure. In your opinion, is the integration model a violation of Psalm 1, as it seems to be to me, considering you are familiar with the integration model? Well, yes, I am familiar with the various approaches to how to counsel an unbeliever uh, or how to counsel a Christian believer. Uh, I do believe in what's called nuthetic counseling. Nuthao is the Greek word that means to encourage or to exhort. And of course, uh, within that word, sometimes there's a reprovement of sin 
and sometimes there's an encouragement in the positive realm, but both uh, nuances are brought out in that particular Greek word. Uh, Jay Adams, many give him credit in the early 1970s for coining the term nuthetic counseling. Uh, Jay Adams um, felt like that beginning in the 1970s, secular psychology was making its way more and more into the church and even into biblical counseling uh, that pastors were doing and being trained on in the seminaries. When I went to Dallas Seminary, and Dallas Seminary is changing, and that's something I'm very saddened by. Um, Many people felt like they were taking a turn in the late 80s Um, I wouldn't say that they're a liberal apostate school, but is Dallas Seminary changing? Absolutely. And it's kind of sad. Some of their uh, views on the role of women in the church are beginning to waver. Um, Their board a couple of years ago said it's okay for uh, professors to drink in moderation to and still be able to serve in our faculty because their rationale is, well, this is the only way we can attract the next generation of leaders to teach in our seminaries. And of course, my thought is, I don't think we need those kind of leaders in our seminaries to uh, lead the next generation of pastors and missionaries because most of the guys, and now a lot of women who attend Dallas Seminary go there to be better equipped and trained in the scripture. I believe the scriptures are sufficient in saying that I do not believe that there is no role at all for a secular input. In other words, sometimes a person needs some medical attention and the role of a psychiatrist who might offer that can be of help. There are people who damage their blood chemistry through stress and other things and they have a nervous breakdown and they need some kind of a chemical introduced into the body. We call it a drug or a prescription in order to be able to uh, balance out the damage that has been done physically in the person uh, for whatever means that it was created. So I'm not eliminating all, um, you know, secular help or that. Uh, There is not a role for medicine in the process. But I do think that what you're experiencing is very different from the kind of counseling that I received at Dallas Seminary. Uh, The Minrith Meyer Clinic used to be a Christian organization who brought people into their clinic uh, to be able to uh, deal with problems that they had, and it was based largely on the scripture. Now, Minrith Meyer, one guy became a little more secularized, and so... um, one broke off and that brother who broke off came and taught the counseling. He was a, you know, a medical doctor. He was um, a practicing psychiatrist in, in, in the Dallas area still is. And his rationale was, is that most of the counseling that uh, people need today and help they need needs to be spiritually biblically based. In fact, Frank would often have people Uh, literally memorize scripture as part of the healing and changing process. He felt like that was absolutely essential to life change. And I agree with him. I think that most of the problems that people have, they don't need to hear from Freud or someone else. They need to hear from God and that God's word is sufficient to change lives and to help people and to give them 
uh, the, the hope and perspective and the renewed mind that can ultimately change their behavior. So I think what you're describing here is very dangerous, but unfortunately becoming very common in evangelicalism. And so uh, pop psychology has filled a lot of the pulpits in America instead of the preaching of God's word. And you get the byproduct. You do not get a healthy result uh, from that. So again, don't misunderstand me. I am not dismissing all medical help that might come. If someone comes to me and they are suffering from an ulcer, I'm going to recommend that they definitely go to a medical doctor, that he go ahead and give them some prescriptions to help them see that ulcer heal. But all he is doing is giving a Band-Aid. Most ulcers, not all, but most are caused from worry. And worry is a spiritual problem. And that has to be addressed in that manner through the word of God, where we gain perspective, where worry is not driving the ship, but the providence of God and resting in his sovereignty that he works all things together for good is. So Emmanuel, as you write us today from Dallas, my heart goes out to you. Don't, don't waver on this. You doesn't matter what your professor is teaching. Uh, You stick to your guns because you're absolutely right. And certainly if you haven't read Competent to Counsel um, by Jay Adams, I think that would be a good read for you because that is indeed an argument for Nuthetic Counseling. And I'm not alone in this. You know, uh, John MacArthur and a number of others also have the same perspective I have, uh, that, that the scriptures are sufficient. And that's the starting place. That's where we need to begin. Good question. Appreciate it. I hope that helps you. All right. Our next caller would like to know, what are the biblical reasons that allow for divorce? And furthermore, what does the Bible say about marrying someone new after a divorce? Well, it's a good question. I might direct you to a sermon that I preached. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, Uh, And you click on resources and you'll see a section for Bible and you type in Matthew chapter 19. I preached a sermon on Matthew 19, 1 through 12 concerning dads who don't keep their promises. It was a Father's Day sermon, but it gave me a reason to deal with the commitment that we're supposed to make at the marriage altar that only death is to sever the relationship. So when you look at what the Bible teaches, and I'll just give you the short answer, but if you really want an hour long answer, because it is an armchair question. And for me to answer it in three minutes will not give you a full and complete answer like you need. But for instance, if you go to Mark's account, Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. When you go to Luke's account, Luke 16, and let me just turn there. I don't want to misquote it. Uh, In Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. When I go to Romans chapter seven, uh, here the Lord, uh, through the apostle Paul's pen, is dealing with the Christian's relationship to the law and he illustrates it with marriage. He says for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined or you could render it married. That's the essence of the context in some English translations put it that way. 
So then if while her husband is living, she is joined or married to another man, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So she is not an adulteress, though she is joined or married to another man. Again, that's what Jesus taught, that only death can break the marriage covenant. When you come to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is responding, beginning in 7.1, to a number of questions that people asked him concerning the things about which you wrote. And so beginning in chapter seven, basically through the end of the book, he begins to tick off the questions one by one and provide for them answers. And so he makes this statement in first Corinthians seven ten to the married. I give instructions, not I, but the Lord that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, so God recognizes that there are times when a woman needs to leave. Uh, maybe she's beaten black and blue by her husband. Maybe he's drinking away the paycheck. Maybe he's abusing the children. Um, there can be a time to leave, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And if the shoes on the other foot and that the wife should not, uh, that the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's making it very, very clear, very plain here as to what God's intentions are concerning the marriage relationship. And he says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. That's in contradistinction to what he says in verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So on the one hand, he's saying in verse 10, that this is instruction that Jesus gave. And I'm going to echo that instruction. When he comes to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 12, he's saying, this is not a subject that Jesus addressed, but I'm going to tell you as his apostle, of course, with the same authority. Well, where did Jesus say that if a wife leaves, she should um, remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. He said that in his teaching on marriage and divorce. Of course, there is an exception clause. It's found twice in the New Testament, only in Matthew's account. In Matthew 5, it's mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew 19. Uh, And certainly this clause has been a point of debate and contention amongst conservative Bible scholars But there he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and let me read it without the exception, and marries another woman commits adultery. But if you read it with the exception, it says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Let me read it like some people read it, but not like it says. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. That's not what it says. It says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and in every English translation, there are two different English words that are used. They differ, but there are two different English words. Why? Because there are two different Greek words. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, uh, sexual immorality, some translate it with two words, fornication, some translations say, and marries another commits adultery. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for porneia, and marries another commits moikeia. So why is there an exception in Matthew and not in Mark and Luke? Because he's dealing with people who practice betrothal. And if during betrothal, that was typically a year long, uh, someone was found to be immoral, you could cancel the marriage agreement. So Joseph, we celebrated at this time of year, finds Mary pregnant while he's betrothed. Now betrothal is a little different from engagement. It's much stronger to um, 
be betrothed to someone. There was a whole process that you went through and it could not easily be broken. In fact, you were called husband and wife, though the marriage had yet not been consummated. There are four examples in the Old Testament where couples are betrothed and they're called husband and wife, but they had had no physical relationship. So if during the betrothal period, someone comes up to be immoral. So Joseph finds Mary pregnant. He assumes she's been immoral. He's a righteous man. So he wants to obey God. And so he's going to put her away, not publicly because he loves her. He doesn't really want to disgrace her and shame her. Uh, But of course, uh, the angel of God comes and says the pregnancy is supernatural. It's not by a human man. It's by God, the Holy Spirit, who overshadowed her womb. And so he keeps her a virgin until and only until she gives birth to Jesus. And then they have normal marital relationships. So for over 1500 years of church history, people said there was no exception. Erasmus during the 16th century argued that the exception clause applied to adultery as well after marriage. And so there are some today who say adultery after marriage can dissolve the marriage bonds and give the innocent party only freedom to remarry. Now, a question that comes all the time to me, because I'd say more than half the people who join our church are on second marriages and many feel guilty. There are new Christians. How do I deal with this? I'm reading some of these scriptures and I feel convicted. And and I say, look, what God has called clean, let no man call unclean. God forgives and can give a fresh start, but that's no reason to disobey God any more than if a woman knows, well, God can forgive my past abortion and now I'm pregnant and it seems inconvenient. So I guess I'll just go to the abortion mill and let them destroy my baby a second time and God will forgive me. You never presume on the grace of God. And so God's ideal in marriage is one man, one woman until death severs the relationship. And the disciples get something about this teaching um, because their question is very Uh, indicative of the fact that he is teaching a different position because there was two schools of thought in Jesus's day from two rabbinical schools from the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. One school said, uh, based on a text in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24, that you could divorce your wife for any reason at all. Uh, The portion of debate was um, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And the question was, what is the indecency? And the indecency in one school of thought was anything you want it to be. You don't like the way she cooks. You don't like the way she looks anymore. Um, A more conservative school said it could only refer to some kind of sexual immorality. And so Jesus takes it above either school and that's indicative in the question the disciples ask. And they say, well, Lord, if, uh, if this is the way the relationship is between a man and his wife, maybe it's better never to get married. They realized he was taking it to a different school, uh, to his own school of thought, to God's original school of thought all the way back in Genesis, where a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and the two become one. And of course, the Pharisees, according to 19.3 of Matthew, come testing him. They are testing him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all, any cause at all? They're going back to Deuteronomy 24, and they're basically saying, look, we've got two schools amongst our school of 
Pharisees and there's over 6,000 of them in the day of Christ. Which school are you with? And Jesus basically says, I'm with neither of you. And it was only because of the hardness of man's heart under the old covenant, God even allowed divorce. Anyway, good question. Listen to the sermon of Matthew 19. It deserves a lot more attention. Very good. Uh, Our next caller would like to know about Judges 11. They would like to know, was Jephthah's vow fulfilled or was it a vow of perpetual virginity for his daughter? Well, it's a good question. Um, You know, I don't think for a second that... um, he ended up slaughtering his daughter or anything like that. Um, but there was an option where he could, for a sum of money, um, basically bypass the vow of perpetual virginity where she would have freedom to remarry. Now, many argue, and I think it's a pretty strong argument that she decided to be a perpetual virgin and that there was a whole assembly of sisters in the Hebrew culture that followed her example. But we know for certain what she didn't do, Um, what he didn't do. He didn't sacrifice her, literally, physically, actually um, kill her. It was certainly a dark day in Israel, and he makes a very foolish vow. And so God warns in places like um, the book of Ecclesiastes that when you make a vow to God, don't, don't make it quickly. Give it thoughtfully. And this, I suppose, can go back to what we just spoke about when you say You know, I will cleave to you and to you only until death do us part. You are to honor that vow. You don't make that quickly. You say, well, what if someone wants to divorce me? Well, you can't control that when someone divorces you against your will, but you do everything to fight for your marriage and to reconcile your marriage and to do what you promised to God that you would cleave to that person to that person only so that if uh, you end up separated, you, you live like a single person, or you pray for reconciliation. Look, it's not over. It is not over just because two people have gotten a divorce. It's over when someone remarries, because then based on Deuteronomy 24, it is impossible. If, if your husband, say, divorces you, he goes and marries a second woman, and then he divorces her, he cannot go back to his first wife. God calls that an abomination, and everything that God calls an abomination under the old covenant, I can promise you it's still an abomination today, whether it's bestiality or homosexuality or anything else you can think of that God puts into that category. Um, So otherwise you'd have a legalized form of adultery, but it might be that you've had a spouse who've divorced you and you could uh, pray for that spouse. You could pray God save him or change him or save her or change her and allow us to be reconciled. And occasionally that happens. Anyway, good questions. Let's go to the next. We could spend a lot more time on these, but um, mm, indeed, we've got a slew of questions that have come in and we're trying to catch up. Our next listener would like to know whether it is biblical to not have wine during communion. Well, it is a good question and wisdom would dictate how you address this. Uh, there is a second century AD, one of the oldest pieces of literature that we have surviving from the early church called the Didache. It's spelled D-I-D-A-C-H-E. It's usually pronounced Didache. Some say Didache. In either case, um, it is basically a second century pastoral manual that gives young pastors uh, just help. You know, sometimes when you become a pastor, Uh, Someone will give you a pastoral manual. How do you do a wedding? How do you do a funeral? They haven't been to seminary. Actually, most men in the country have never been to seminary. 
And so they pass through their first church and all of a sudden someone's dead and you've got a funeral to do. Um, I remember I had not been a pastor very long and uh, a young 12 year old boy committed suicide and they didn't really teach us in seminary how to, how to preach uh, the funeral of someone who commits suicide. Um, and you know, having a resource can be helpful. Uh, some of them are better than others, but in the didash, um, it said that when wine and the word wine oinos is used of either grape juice that is fermented or grape juice that is fresh. Sometimes to distinguish it in the old Testament, they'll call it new wine. But when the wine got old, they didn't have preservatives like we do in our day so that you could preserve the wine and keep it from turning into fermented alcohol. Uh, so uh, the Didash argued that lest we be guilty of using strong drink, strong drink obviously was not the distilled liquors that come centuries later. They come almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed. So somebody says, well, I know God prohibits strong drink. So I, I drink wine, but I don't drink whiskey and rum and vodka because that's strong drink and God prohibits that. Well, that's nonsense because whenever you apply a passage of scripture to your life, you always have to ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And when I understand what it means to the original audience, then I can make proper application in my life. So I know strong drink could not have meant that because those kinds of strong drinks, so indeed they are strong drink, did not even exist in the time of the Bible writers. But wine that had fermented was considered strong drink. And so they mixed it typically in a four to one ratio, four parts water, one part wine. Uh, in most circles of Orthodox Jews today, they continue to do the same thing. I was just on the phone yesterday with a, a rabbi in Jerusalem. We spent about a half an hour on the phone and he's an Orthodox Jew and they are very careful about their usage of wine because they know the only exception that God gave to the use of strong drink was to give to a dying, despairing man. So with that said, you're asking in reference to the communion table. Well, number one, I don't think it's necessary today to have real wine at the communion table in the, in the definition of fermented wine. Are you using real wine when you use grapefruit, Welch's grape juice? Yes, you are. Biblically, you are. Because new wine was called, uh, when you squeeze grapes and you made grape juice, that was called wine. It just hadn't fermented yet. So, yes, you are using wine, so to speak. Is it wise to use fermented wine? I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so at all. In fact, I've tried to help some of our brethren in the Ukraine with this. Um, when I've been traveling to the Ukraine since the late 1990s, I've made maybe 50 trips there and have dealt with a lot of brethren in um, Eastern Europe. I did a pastor's conference a couple of years ago in Kiev, and they came from all over. Uh, Eastern Europe, all the various former Soviet republics, including Russia. And that was kind of interesting because there was a war going on at the time between Russia and Ukraine. It's still going on. We just don't see it much in print and in press today. Uh, but it was neat to see that these Russian brothers, in spite of the propaganda, 
that the Soviets, uh, Putin and others, were giving to the Russian people, they still love their Ukrainian brothers, though technically the two nations were at war, still are. Um, but my point is, is I would say to a lot of these brothers, look, it's not wise for you to be using real wine at the Lord's Supper. Why? Because alcoholism, is it's often referred to, God just calls it drunkenness, is widespread. And there is a high percentage, I mean a high percentage of new believers who come out of drunkard backgrounds. Uh, it is such a huge problem, kind of like opioids is be- are becoming here in the United States. Uh, alcohol and its abuse is so widespread. And so I said to them, look, when you have someone that has come out of an alcohol background and they're trying to walk with the Lord and you invite them to participate in the Lord's table and they drink from that cup and they get that good old alcohol taste in their uh, mouth again, for many of them, it's a stumbling block. And so instead of the Lord's table being a point of blessing, it becomes a stumbling block. And that's not healthy. And that's not holy. And that's unwise. So I would say there's no need for it in our day. Now, again, if you were in a country and there was no grape juice and all you had was wine, then mix it four to one. Uh, because no one's going to get drunk off of that kind of a, a ratio, four parts water, one part wine. But, you know, we live in a day where so many have become slack. You know, we were talking about Dallas Seminary here at the beginning of the thing. And so the president of Dallas Seminary says, well, we were wrong all these years and we've come into a more biblical view. Oh, really? So you're telling me that Lewis Perry Chafer and Don Campbell and John Walver, the first three presidents of Dallas Theological Seminary, were wrong for basically, you know, 90 years until you came along and you initially agreed, uh, Mark, that uh, this was the right thing. And now we've been enlightened. Listen, it's really sad because the view that I'm espousing right now used to be standard in evangelicalism when I was a new Christian. It would be hard to find a Christian leader on the radio or in pulpits who said it was okay to use alcohol. Now, guys like me, we're narrow-minded and ignorant and legalistic in a lot of people's eyes. The truth is, is that they are ignorant of the scriptures and the burden of proof to say that strong drink is something different from the way I've described it is on them. And I would love to see their evidence because I've never seen it yet. If you want to read a good article, um, Christianity Today is basically a liberal magazine today. It was started by Carl F. Henry and Billy Graham, and it was once kind of the time magazine of Christianity. It was a great art, great magazine. It's just basically apostate today. It's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Every once in a while, there might be a good article in it, but there's more error in it than there's truth. But in 1973, Robert Stein, still alive, he's an adjunct professor at Southern Seminary. He's in his early 80s now. But in 1973, he wrote an article, Stein, that's easy to remember, like a beer Stein, uh, Wine Drinking in the New Testament. Uh, Read that article. It will give you uh, a, a good read on understanding this biblically. In fact, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, and it's, uh, it's on my website as well. You might want to read it there. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, and Jelaine from Yucca Valley, California writes, what is your interpretation of Proverbs 22.6? I want to believe this proverb is a promise that if I follow God's plan and design for family and teaching and training my children, 
Then my children will come to personal faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. A more popular interpretation seems to be that this proverb is a principle that is sometimes true, but not always. Would God tell us in his word how to train in our children, but then leave the results to chance? I'm a homeschooling mother of 10. All my children who are old enough to understand are following God. I don't take credit for that, but try to share God's methods of family and parenting work. But others say not to give false hope to young parents or bring grief to older parents who have failed. They say experience tells us that this is uh, this proverb is a principle that is usually true, but there are exceptions. Would you please help me correctly understand this verse? Well, it's a good question. I don't remember how many weeks ago. I think it was back in October, but you could click on old Bible lines. And I think you always list out all the questions, right, Rick? And so one of the questions that came in was, uh, are the uh, statements in Proverbs merely principles or promises? And certainly there are some principles in the book of Proverbs, but there's a ton of promises as well. And so I went through a number of those uh, that weren't just principles, but promises. Uh, for instance, in the writer to the Hebrews in the 12th chapter uh, tells us, um, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. Is that a principle or is that a promise? That's a promise. Where does it come from? Proverbs 3.11. God disciplines those whom he loves. It's a promise. So how do you distinguish between a principle and a promise? Well, many take the verse in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And because they were utter failures as parents, they say, well, that's a principle. And uh, that's not a promise from God. I don't think so. I, I, I think that's an abuse of scripture and you're taking a lot of the hope and the wind out of a person's sail in terms of what God does allow and what God uh, look, wants us to look to him in faith for. And, and, and a lot reinterpret it and they say, you know, train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And they say, you know, I... I brought my child to church and to Sunday school and, you know, they got in their, into college or in their early twenties and they've run away from God and they want nothing to do. But I'm just claiming that promise. God says when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's not what the verse is saying. He's saying when he comes of age, he'll continue in that way. In other words, when the fence is removed and you're not there to make him good anymore, he'll, he'll want to continue in the way. That doesn't mean that a Christian child can't have a time of rebellion in their life. But as a general principle and as a promise, God is saying your child is not going to you know, walk away from the Christian faith and renounce Christianity. Look, all of us can get out of fellowship with God. Even today, you could get angry at someone. Have you left the faith? No, you haven't abandoned the faith. Are you in fellowship with God if it's not a righteous anger? And n No, but you've broken fellowship with the Lord. You've broken intimacy. And sometimes people allow anger to turn into bitterness, and bitterness can control them for years and defile many. Are they going to heaven? Yes. But even those people often have not, you know, they don't renounce the faith because a true Christian can't. And so this is a greatly abused verse in our day. But again, how do you know some verses are principles or promises? 
Well, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And so when you compare this with other scripture, then it gives you hope and insight as to the fact that this is not a mere principle, but this is really a promise. For instance, in first Timothy chapter three, he says it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, freedom, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So God is saying, look, you're looking for leadership in the church. Don't look for the number of PhDs after his name. Don't look how successful he is in business. Uh, Look at his life. Look at his character traits. And included in that is a man's family. And if a man can't manage his family well, what makes us think he's going to manage the church of God well? If he can't function well in a limited realm, why would we want to broaden his realm of influence? If he can't make Christianity work in his home, why would we want to export it into the church? And so when it comes to the office of elder, it's very important that there are some things in place. Well, God says it's a trustworthy statement. It's a good thing for a man to aspire to the office of elder. Question, does God ask you to aspire to something that is impossible to achieve? Not at all. God gives promises and commands that if we will look to him, He will provide, (coughs) excuse me, the way in which to accomplish that aim. So this mom with 10 children, praise the Lord that God has been so gracious to bless your womb, to give you 10 children. A lot of people would make fun of you in our day and mock you and say, what's their problem? And why are they overpopulating the world? And then look, there are Christians like this. And, um, but you're raising your children for the Lord. That's a great thing. Look, if we fail as parents, We need to take a hard look inside. Now, many times parents have a form of Christianity without substance when they're raising their children and they're not walking with God. So they really can't train the child up in the way that he should go. Uh, The word is not first in their heart such that when they rise up and lay down and eat at the dinner table where they can teach the principles of the word of God. And so I understand that. And I'm not, you know, diminishing Uh, the experience of some people who came to faith late in Christ or right in the middle of the teenage years when they're trying to raise their kids for the Lord and they're baby Christians. And so God understands that. I take all of that into consideration. But the basic principle is that if you know Christ and you are obeying Christ and walking with Christ, your children will do well. And that's the basic principle. That's what God says. Now, sometimes though, you know, we say, well, I came to church every Sunday and I was involved and I served. And, but sometimes too, our heart was in other places. You know, we we're watching movies that we shouldn't be watching. We we're listening to music that we shouldn't be listening to. We we're drinking things that we shouldn't have drank. And our heart was compromised and our heart was out of fellowship. And so our ability to really fulfill the promise that God gave was extremely limited and diminished. And so sometimes we don't want to face that. And 
are not facing it sometimes is a hindrance to God really uh, turning things around with a wayward child or a disobedient adult child or whatever the situation might be. Anyway, by the way, this is a little commercial beginning in April, April the 4th. That's the Wednesday night after Easter. I will begin a brand new series called Effective Parenting. And maybe that would be of help to some people. Effective Parenting, it will begin uh, April the 4th, 2018. That's the Wednesday night after Easter. And by God's grace, Lord willing, we will begin that new series. Let's go to the next question. Okay, I think we've got time to do one quick one. How should I respond to my female family member who uses Anna from Luke 2 as an example for why she should be preaching? Well, you know, again, you know, uh, isn't it incredible uh, what people will do to make a point from the Bible? And to take Anna as a biblical basis of why she should be a preacher is such a stretch beyond all measure. It's absolutely incredible to me that someone would, would even think in those terms. But sometimes if a person wants to disobey God, they're going to find quote unquote, a biblical basis, some verse that they can baptize their disobedience in, in order to, to justify what they're doing. And, um, God's word is, is clear. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, behold, so you see Simeon who has this experience, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We were talking about last Sunday about the 10 lost tribes. Well, if they're lost, the New Testament knows nothing about it. Uh, that we saw came out of British Israelism, uh, where basically they said the 10 tribes wandered all the way to Britain and became a really a, an anti-Semitic doctrine. And they say the Anglo-Saxon British and by extension, the white Americans formed the 10 lost tribes. Well, if they're lost, God doesn't know anything about it because here's a woman from the tribe of Asher that would have been one of the 10 Northern tribes. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years and after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to who? To God and continued to speak of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So what's really happening, she's in the temple. Um, She recognizes that this baby brought in is the Messiah, the one she had been waiting, awaiting. Why would she be awaiting? Because the prophet Daniel taught this was the time frame Messiah had to come. And she was hoping it would happen in her life. And when she sees the baby brought in, she doesn't preach her sermon. She goes and prays and thanksgiving to God Almighty that the Messiah had come into the world. And that's the meaning of Christmas, that the cradle would go to the cross. And someday that cross will turn into a crown when he will come again and rule and reign sovereignly over the nations of the world. We're out of time, but thanks for joining us for this Bible line. It's uh, you can download it on a podcast if you go to searchthescriptures.org. Thanks for being with us.